Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Some of you here don't know me, so a quick introduction. My name's Paul. I've been at CCM quite a while now. (laughs) I'm married to Jane, and I have four mostly grown-up children. After working at Hewlett-Packard for 28 years, I took a major career left turn and retrained in finance. So I now work as a trainee accountant including helping with the accounts here at CCM. (laughs) I am an unashamed geek. I love computers, history, science, gaming, memes. I have more board games and war games than I can possibly get around to playing. And like you guys, I love the scriptures. Thank you to my daughter, Rebecca, at the back, who's taking time out from the Reddish congregation to run my PowerPoint for me today. (laughs) And thank you to Stu McGregor and Joanna Dixon and Molly and Corrie and the folks from my community group who helped me with thinking about and crafting our talk this morning. 1 Corinthians 19, Covenant, Judgment, Grace. Covenant is a good Bible word. It means coming together. Two parties come together to make a contract, a covenant agreeing on promises, stipulations, privileges and responsibilities, maybe consequences. There can be legal covenants, agreements binding in law. We speak of the covenant of marriage, two people committing to each other for life. That was quite a while ago. (laughs) In the Old Testament, the people of Israel were a covenant people. They had committed themselves to obeying God, following his rules, doing what he had said. And in return, they would be a chosen people, a royal priesthood, holy nation, God's special possession. God said in Exodus, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But if they did not obey, there's a scary list of curses near the end of Deuteronomy 28, bad things that could happen. Last week, in 1 Kings 18, we saw how God sent fire from heaven 
onto an altar, burning up, sacrifice, wood, altar, water, all together. Today in 1 Kings 19, we will see that that demonstration of power seemed to make no real difference to the stiff-necked people of Israel. Things are going to come full circle. Judgment is coming. Yet even then, we will see that God's grace and mercy come to an individual and to a nation. So if you remember, this is the setup. Israel is ruled by King Ahab. We're not doing stupid things that arouse the anger of Yahweh. It seems to me Ahab mostly wanted an easy life, his own way with no conflicts and no stresses. Alas, he had married to ensure a political alliance a Phoenician princess called Jezebel. She was not a follower of God. She was a devoted worshipper of the Phoenician nature god, Baal. And it seems she was the power behind Ahab's throne. So the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, is ruled by a queen who follows a heathen god and a king who doesn't like to cause a fuss. Things are not going to go well. And the people, it seemed they just didn't know what to think or do. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. In 1 Kings 18, God demonstrated his supremacy in that one-sided battle on Mount Carmel. A great victory is won. The prophets of the false god Baal humiliated, defeated, and slaughtered. All this in front of King Ahab. So Ahab, having seen that his wife's religion is as useless as a house built on the sand, hitches up his chariot and rides back to Jezebel's military center at Jezreel. He has some bad news to deliver to his wife. He has seen the power and the supremacy of the true God. Will he now believe? And what of Jezebel? Will she soften in the face of such a clear demonstration of the authority of God? And how will the people respond? At the end of chapter 18, they'd cried out, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. But as Beth said last week, actions are the testament of the hearts. Does God think their hearts have changed? Are they returning to the covenant? 1 Kings 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them 
by tomorrow, about this time. You took the lives of my prophets, she is saying to Elijah, so I will take your life. And Elijah saw, some translations say, was afraid. He saw, was afraid, and arose and ran for his life. So the answer is no. Jezebel has not changed. She now knows the truth. Yahweh is the Lord of Lords, but she refuses to let that truth impact her. She's the perfect example of what the Apostle John writes in his gospel. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. In preparing this, I've been greatly blessed by Dale Ralph Davis's commentary on 1 Kings, The Wisdom and the Folly. And Davis argues that it was this stubbornness that Elijah saw that made him so afraid. That if Jezebel is unaffected by such a mighty miracle as that fire on Mount Carmel, then what hope is there for her as a sinner, for himself as a prophet, and for the slumbering nation of God's chosen people. Elijah's faith-filled actions on Carmel have kicked over the proverbial hornet's nest, and he has the personal hatred of the most powerful and least emotionally stable woman in the kingdom. She is going to organise his death, and it seems the people are doing nothing. So he ran. When he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die, and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose, ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food forty days and nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Elijah is not fleeing at random. This is where he's heading, Horeb, otherwise known as Sinai, because Elijah is seeking God and this is the mountain of God. In my imagination, As Elijah lay there in the desert, starting to fall asleep under that juniper tree, full of that miraculous bread 
just like his mother used to bake on hot stones, he dreams of the great prophet Moses. Because Elijah knows that he is not the first prophet to make this journey through the wilderness to the mountain of God. He knows the stories of Moses leading the people here. Sinai is where the Hebrews, after escaping from slavery in Egypt, entered into covenant with God. This is where the Lord came down in smoke and fire, earthquake and thunder. This is where the Ten Commandments were given. This is where Moses, from a cave in the rock, saw the glory of the Lord pass by. This is where Elijah is heading. Elijah awakes. The miraculous food from God is manna to sustain him through the wilderness. He's going to the mountain. He's looking to encounter God. Then Elijah came to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Dale Ralph Davis writes, This is God's invitation to Elijah to state his case. Prophet of the Lord, prophet of the people of Israel, say what you have to say. Elijah said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. This is the case for the prosecution, the covenant forsaken. The only point wrong here is Elijah's, I alone am left. And I bet it feels that way to him. But the rest, the damning indictment of the sons of Israel, is depressingly accurate. Isn't it interesting that Jezebel gets no mention here? Maybe by now, nothing much is expected from her. Elijah's focus is on the people of Yahweh and their unfaithfulness. And this is the central tragedy of 1 Kings 19. So God said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. When Moses and the nation came before the Lord on this mountain, there was wind and earthquakes and fire. What will God do now? A great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking into pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a gentle blowing. 
When Elijah heard that, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Like and yet unlike. God, the same yesterday, today and forever, yet behold, he is doing a new thing. Maybe God was doing something with Elijah's expectations. Never let us think we've fully understood God, got him pigeonholed, as it were. We are the clay, he is the potter. Again, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Again, Elijah states his case. I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. God does not seem to argue. He merely pronounces sentence. The Lord said to him, go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael king over Aram, and Jehu son of Nimshi you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphath of Abel-Meholah you shall anoint as prophet in your place. And it shall come about that the one who escapes the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. The people are judged, the covenant enforced. There are consequences. The sword is coming. We don't often talk about judgment. It's a bit uncomfortable. It's a lot scary. For the nation of Israel back then, judgment would be invasion, occupation, destruction. But this is still relevant for us today because there will be a final judgment. In the New Testament, in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul says, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. The man who God has appointed is Jesus. I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb here and say you're probably safe for the next 25 minutes or so because God doesn't want to miss out on the worship this morning. But after that, there are no guarantees. We live day to day as if we were immortal. When you get on a bit, like me, your body starts to remind you that's not actually the case. One day we will all die, and we will face Jesus, and he will judge in righteousness. I will have to go through that. Have I always been righteous? 
made right decisions, followed God's divine law? No, I have not. If we understand judgment like that, then grace, undeserved mercy, is amazing. In the midst of one king's story of judgment, God shows wonderful mercy to Elijah. He sent an angel. He fed and watered Elijah. He led him to the mountain, appeared to him, spoke to him, recommissioned him. Elijah knew he was nothing special. He says, no better than my father's. But he has cast his lot in with God, and God is delighted with his faith. I asked my son, Peter, who's a philosophy undergraduate, what he thought the greatest mercy shown to Elijah was. He said it was God ignoring Elijah's prayer to take his life. Sometimes in his mercy, God blesses our faithful stumbling and ignores the rubbish we say sometimes. I said before, there will be a final judgment, and I believe it. But if God's judgment is ahead of us, then God's mercy and grace are right here, right now, through Jesus. We are people of covenant, the new covenant. Jesus' body given for us. Jesus' blood shed. A new contract that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. Christ has paid the price on the cross of crucifixion and taken the shame and the judgment that we deserve. When I was 19, a few years ago, at university in Durham, I knew my life was going nowhere, and in my unrighteousness, in a church service like this, I cried out to Jesus, and he rescued me and welcomed me into his kingdom, and I have never regretted that moment. Do you need to cry out to God like that today? And as for us who are already followers, let us again marvel at the new covenant mercy. There's nothing special about us. But through the love and sacrifice of Jesus, we are now a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into wonderful light. And now we live with covenant promises. God is our Father in heaven. He welcomes us to us. He cares for us. He hears our prayers. He speaks to us, leads us. He guides us and corrects us. He calls us friends. He causes us to bear fruit. He gives us calling and purpose. He will never leave us, never forsake us, and no one can snatch us from his hand. It will rarely be quick, and it will never be easy. But God is faithful to his covenant 
promises. Is that not extraordinary good news? The climax of our story, the last verse of our passage today, is when the Lord says, yet I. I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. In his mercy and grace, God will leave 7,000 faithful. Not mercy for one tired and rather despondent prophet, mercy for the nation. After all that's happened, Ahab's uselessness, Jezebel's evil, the nation's slumbering, Elijah's accusations, the Lord will still have his people, the Lord will have his way. This is our final point to take great encouragement from. The Lord is sovereign. I don't know about you, but when I read the news online, especially at the moment, I wonder, is there any hope for the world? Then I open my Bible and I read Jesus saying, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not overcome it. It makes me think of Acts 18, where the Apostle Paul at Corinth is starting to get scared. And God says to him, I have many people in this city. Around here, in our friends and family, our streets and student accommodation, in this great city of Manchester, in his mercy, God has many people in this city. People not yet believers that he has kept safe, that will yet call upon his name, will yet be saved. He is building his church. God our Father, in our lives, in our city, in our nation, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven.